0: Welcome to the Civil Squared podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now, your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson.
1: Hi, thanks for joining us today. You are about to hear a conversation that I recently had with Dr. Christopher Fryman, who is an associate professor of philosophy at William and Mary. Uh, Chris works in democratic theory and on immigration, on distributive justice. He has a Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of Arizona. Uh, And he's written a number of different things, including uh, book chapters, articles in philosophical journals as well as popular press. Uh, And he has written a number of books, but the one we're going to talk about today is called Why It's Okay to Ignore Politics. And just as we are running up to an election, uh, that may seem like a strange topic, but it's a really timely topic. Chris has spent a lot of time thinking about this, and we want you to spend some time thinking about your own political participation, your activities, uh, how strongly you feel about your political participation, and to really think through what's it doing for you and what's it doing for the community around you. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. We're going to talk about your conclusion, but... Uh, the conclusion that it's, it's not only all right, it might be the most moral choice, maybe, uh, not to be involved in politics and maybe not to vote, I think is the kind of thing that if somebody's driving along in their car and they hear me saying this, they're going to be like, what, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so let's get into this, but let's, for those people who like the suspense is just going to be killing them, let's top line it here a little bit. Why is it okay to ignore politics?
0: Yeah, and I should say, I didn't quite appreciate how, how scandalous people would find this title when I proposed it. Uh, so, so yeah, that was unanticipated. The The short version of why it's okay to ignore politics is that in most cases, your political participation won't do much good. So the central case of this is voting. Depending on where you live, your vote might have a, a higher lower chance of affecting the outcome of the presidential election. But for all practical purposes, you should not count on your vote in the election actually changing the outcome. And my view is given this, it's perfectly fine not to cast that vote and say spend the time that you would have spent preparing the vote and casting the vote, registering to vote and so on, uh, on other activities that are more likely to do good. In the book I talk a lot about what's known as effective altruism. And this is roughly the practice of allocating your time and resources to philanthropic causes that that are shown to do a lot of good. So uh, things that actually can save the lives of people. And I say, look, it's permissible if you ignore politics, you don't watch the debate, you don't cast a vote, uh, and you do your part for the world in other sorts of ways, ways that are probably going to help more people. Yeah,
1: so I think that and I wanna talk about some of those details. I wanna talk about how politics affects us and some of the really, I think, very discouraging statistics about the way we feel about one another in terms of politics. I wanna talk about how politics has become so coincident with our identities uh, and you know, the, our, our motivated reasoning, all these things you get into in the book. But let's also start here because I again I really do think this is the kind of thing people respond so emotionally to. Um, we were so good at shaming people about voting. You know, I'm walking, I walk down my street and I see all the signs, you know, like the fact that I don't have a sign on my yard on my yard makes me feel like my neighbors are looking at me like you don't care, you don't care, right. you know. Um I if if somebody's listening to this. And they're they're going to have heard the intro, and they're going to say, "This guy's a philosopher. What does he? Get, why does he get to tell us about this kind of stuff?" So, as a philosopher myself, I wouldn't question that. But I think somebody who's listening could say. What does a philosopher have to say about politics? Why are you somebody they should be listening to?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I would would say they shouldn't take my my word for it. They should hear the arguments and, and, uh, you know, think think about whether they find them compelling or not on their merits. But I think, uh, you know, philosophically, you know, one question we ask is, how should you live your life? And you only have so much time and energy, and you can only spend so much time on one cause, uh, you can only do, you know, there's only so many hours in a day and you only have so much money to donate to say a political campaign or an effective charity. And so one question that a philosopher is going to ask is, you know, how should you do that? What's the, the right way to live your life? Uh, what sorts of causes should you prioritize? And so my my argument in the book is that uh, it's perfectly fine to prioritize non-political causes that do a lot of good. And I will say too that the point about you know you feel like you're being shamed perhaps silently by not having the sign. I do have I have an easy fix for you. Some people like this, some people don't. Here's what you can do if you want to avoid the the public shaming: is you can go online, you can go to Amazon, and get a roll of I voted stickers. You don't actually have to vote. You can just buy it. I don't know how much it costs. It's pretty cheap. You just get the put the sticker on. You don't even have to vote. But then you can avoid the shame. And I think that's probably a more cost-effective shame avoidance. But you know, shame avoidance back in the day. If you want to go that route.
1: I've I've thought about having a sign. You know, they have all these signs that say, In this house we believe. I've thought about having a sign that says in this house we don't believe in yard signs out of my yard and seeing how that affects my neighbors. Name. I
0: would buy that sign. I would like that.
1: See, well, maybe I got a business there. I gotta think about that. Um uh, yeah, I mean. When you talk about that, about what's the best way to live, so I think a lot of people think, one, we have duties to be politically engaged, we have a duty to vote. Um, you know, uh, I was thinking about my kids, both of my kids have had teachers, they've had whole seminars, even though neither one of them can vote, they've had seminars at their schools about the importance of voting. It's this kind of thing where, you know, it's anathema and to talk about not voting, But when you're talking about the best way to live or what's the best life we can live, it is true. And and one of the things your book does really well is lay out statistical information that demonstrates our engagement in politics is not, it's certainly not making us feel better, right? right? I mean, we don't feel better about ourselves necessarily, and we really don't feel good about the people around us.
0: Yes, it, it, political engagement really seems to uh, ramp up our hostility towards other people. And, I, and I'll also just briefly mention, I've had the similar sort of experience about hearing about voting as a civic duty in my children's schoolwork. Also, I remember watching Daniel Tiger. I don't know if this is still on, it's like a cartoon show for kitten. And they did a whole episode on the importance of voting and Sesame Street has episodes on the importance of voting. It's a very important thing. Um, yeah, you right. say
1: somewhere in the book, something about when Daniel Tiger uh, the Pope and Sesame Street are all on the same page. You know it's important, right?
0: Yes, that that's a you know that's a powerful team right there. And so maybe maybe that's a reason for uh, listeners to be skeptical of me <laughs> if I'm on the wrong side of that divide. Uh, you know, if that that's maybe a fair worry. But right, so so it certainly mixes miserable in most cases. So some people I think have this view that oh politics is kind of entertaining. And I even remember having conversations with people who say, well I look at you know, politics in the way that I look at sports, it's like a spectacle and it's a competition, all this sort of thing. I say, okay, you know, fine, if that's your attitude and and you're not getting stressed out about it. But it it seems like most people are extraordinarily uh, stressed out about it on both sides. There's just a lot of evidence people lose sleep, their physical health suffers, their psychological health suffers. And it would be one thing if this was for some noble cause, if if you were suffering in order to acquire knowledge that you need to cure a disease or build a bridge or or something that, that is is really impactful and really helpful, but this is more like suffering for for you know suffering. It's like getting a root canal for you know no upshot. It's like you don't ha- you don't have any dental problem, but you get a root canal just for the heck of it. It's like that would be very weird. And th- so I have this line in the book uh, f- from my uh, from my son. Uh, who at the time was five years old, he had this great line, I thought it was really perceptive, where he said, uh, why does grandpa watch the news if he doesn't like the news? Because you know he'll watch the news and it's CNN and it's all this stuff about politics that would get him really upset. And I thought, yeah, like, this is a, like a great question. Why are we doing this if, if we hate it? Again, it's not that it enables us to do anything particularly helpful. We just do it and we get infuriated by it and it makes us miserable and we lose sleep. Uh, and not only that, it it really does uh, amplify the hostility that we have for for people on the other side. So people are increasingly saying that. So if you're a Republican, you'd say this about Democrats and vice versa. They say it's not just an honest difference of opinion about the right way to govern. The other side is evil. Yeah, uh, it's not a majority of people who say that, but it's it's uh, more people uh, than I think you might expect, have this view of the other side, that it's not just that they're mistaken, it's that they're bad. So there's things
1: like, you know, um, people saying, a not insignificant number of people saying the world would, the the country would be better off if people on the other side, a, a lot, a large number of people on the other side of me, whatever I am, just died. Right. There's, I don't want my kids dating someone of the other, whatever it is, the other political party, I think those people are stupid, they're lazy. And we're saying that on both sides about the other side, right? So we've we've got this sense where, as you say, it's not just a difference of opinion. There is something wrong with people who are on the other side, the thems. There's something really, really wrong, so much so that I think the world would be improved if they die.
0: Right. I wanna say off the top of my head, it's about 15 to 18%, yeah. which is a, an incredibly high number. When you think about it, we say large numbers of the out party dying would be a good thing. And, and that's really extraordinary. Uh, and I think this is, this is unhealthy. And sometimes when, when I make this point, people say, well, does this mean you're a kind of relativist where you think, well, all opinions are equally good or that there's no political opinion that's intolerable? I say, no, I, I'm not a relativist. I don't think all opinions are equally good. And I do think that there are political opinions that are, that are intolerably bad. Uh, but I also think it's possible for people to have good faith disagreements about hard political questions. I don't think merely uh, disagreeing with me makes somebody evil. And one reason for this is just, so I teach, I teach political philosophy, I teach moral philosophy, I teach applied ethics, and these are courses that discuss a lot of the issues that are in the national political discourse, things that we're, we're debating about right now. So things like free speech, criminal justice, racial justice, climate justice. All of these things, Uh, and they're they're just complicated, and so you know there's no particular reason to think that just because somebody arrives at a different conclusion that they're downright evil, and it would be a good thing if they died. Now maybe there again there's some conclusions that are downright evil, Um, but I think we should be reluctant to make that sort of claim simply on the grounds that somebody has a different opinion than we do about a very complicated issue.
1: Yeah, I mean, so this to me is is really important. I mean, even if you're full on about the, the kind of duty you have to be engaged in politics, to care about politics, let's say you totally, we'll just stipulate that you totally buy that, that you have some kind of moral obligation. If you look at those kinds of surveys and polling, what it demonstrates is that politics, as you say, causes us to dehumanize one another, which is going to lead to um, all kinds of ways that we will treat people poorly, that we will um, be biased against them and everything else. So that even if you were a hundred percent down with the idea that I have a duty to be politically active, what it is doing to us as human beings and how we relate to one another is something we, I think you say something like if, if you were watching a TV show that made you hate people or be willing to say something like, I think the world would be better off if these people are dead. You would have an obligation not to watch that kind of a TV show, right?
0: Right, yeah, take politics out of it, take any TV show. You know, I don't know, I hesitate to name actual TV shows because like, I, you know, not to, not to indict any TV shows, but it's like, I don't know, supposed to be like, oh, here's this new cartoon. And if you watch this cartoon, it's probably gonna cause you to hate people who like, like another cartoon. And you'd be like, huh okay, is there some great payoff, like some noble payoff for me? And during the, like, no, it's not actually gonna make a difference. It's just gonna make you hate people. Say, okay, I, that's probably a pretty strong reason not to watch that show. Uh, and, and right, you mentioned a, a lot of these findings about the ways in which people are becoming increasingly hostile to out party members. It has an effect on their relationships. It has an effect on work relationships, for example, who you wanna work for, who you wanna hire, who you want to distribute scholarships to. And I think one of the interesting uh, findings uh, uh, on this point suggests that people are actually less motivated by loyalty to their side than they are uh, distaste. Yeah. So they, they, they hate the other party more than they love their own party. And one explanation for this, which, which strikes me as pretty plausible, is just people kind of recognize that their own party is imperfect in various ways. And so they have to come up with the reason why they continue to support their party despite its flaws. And one way to do that is to amplify, amplify the flaws of the out party. We say, yeah, my party's not so great. Look at all the bad things it does. But the other party is terrible. Even they're worse. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So yeah, my party's spineless. I know they're not great, but we've got to stop the evil side. Yeah. And so this incentivizes us to, to ramp up our hostility towards the other side. I think that's really unhealthy.
1: Well, and the other thing is, I think you mentioned in there um, a finding about people who uh, there is less joy in your party winning than there is in disliking the other side. I mean, that might not be it, but it, it's you don't get that much benefit out of your party winning.
0: That, that's right. So, So you hardly get any sort of psychological benefit when your party wins, but you are psychologically devastated when your party loses. And I forget the exact details, but if memory serves, it's something like, uh, when your party loses the presidential election in, in, in the months after, your psychological well being takes the same sort of hit that it would take if you lost your job. Yeah, it is really right. one of the most traumatic experiences that people can have. And it, it, again, this is we're experiencing these huge costs for virtually virtually no benefit.
1: Yeah. So it's, and I know you're not a historian or a political scientist or anything, but it it does seem to me, and you cite, I think, Liliana Mason's book, in talking about um, uncivil agreement, I think it's called, um, in, in talking about how our identities are so wrapped up in our politics, I don't remember that being the case, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, I knew what my parents, I, I know what my parents' political points of view are, but I don't remember them saying, well, this person who believes something different is a terrible person, right? Or our neighbors who have this yard sign, there were no yard signs, but on their lawn, oh my gosh, we can't trust those people. Has that changed? Is, and, and, and if so, what is prompting that putting our identities together with our politics,
0: yeah, and I have to say, this sounds like a utopia with no yard signs. I wish yeah. I wish we could go back. That would be incredible. Uh, yeah, so, so I, think that, I think that's right. So, so I think one issue is there's almost a snowball effect here where the, just the, the social distance between the party members is increasing. And, th- and so this is something that, that Mason talks about, where our so- so social circles are just more and more, uh, are increasingly populated by people of our own political persuasion. And so we just have less what you might call casual or friendly contact without party members. And I was actually just just reading something uh, the other day about having positive contact with the out party can help reduce some of this partisan hostility, so it could just be you know uh, you know having a, the, the cliche of having a beer or something like that with with people uh, who have different political opinions than you can help uh, alleviate some of this problem, but I, I do think a big part of the problem is that now you know politics is everything and you're hanging out with people who you know they have the same food preferences as you do, they have the same television preferences and all this stuff, and it all orbits around your politics. And so there's just very little contact. So like, you know, there's really interesting uh, evidence that like Democrats like different uh, TV shows than Republicans. So if you say, hey, like, I want to get together and watch my favorite shows, you're probably hanging out with people who share your political opinions. And this just kind of reinforces the polarization where you're just not having contact with the other side.
1: I think personally, having read your book, and having spent some time looking at these kinds of things anyways, I, I can buy the argument that even if you were 100% committed to the idea that you, you have some kind of obligation to be politically active, the ways in which it is doing bad things to you and to your relationships with people is an argument for having some serious questions about your political involvement. But you don't, you don't stop with that. Uh, I think that is a compelling argument and one that people need to take seriously, but you also talk about knowledge and about what we can know, how we apply that knowledge and beyond that, the way we reason and how we have some biases in our reason. And, and one of the things that I thought was particularly good when you talk about motivated reasoning and that, um, and I want you to talk about that and sort of explain all of those things is that when we think we're sort of exceptional or that we're super intelligent or whatever, and that, you know, for sure, that's not going to affect us. We're actually way worse than the average person <laughs> in terms of being biased in our reasoning and looking for reasons to justify our own thinking. So talk a little bit about the knowledge, the application, what we'd have to know to make political involvement Really, kind of productive and meaningful, um, from our own point of view. Really,
0: right. It, it, it is interesting that right. So, so people can be confronted with evidence about how they are almost certainly biased, and yet we find ways to to shrug it off and convince ourselves that we're the exception to the rule. But I think there are really sort of two two sorts of things that have to be done uh, for you to have justified confidence that your political participation is is aimed at the, the right outcome or the best outcome. So one is just is just information. And so, so for example, if you have candidates who have different views on things like uh, immigration, social security, uh, criminal justice reform, capital punishment, school vouchers, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, and, and so it's it's quite plausible that one candidate is better with respect to these things and the other candidates better with respect to those things? How much better is this candidate with respect to those things and which one's more important? It's just a daunting amount of knowledge. Uh, And so it seems like at a minimum, you have to have information about things like school vouchers and what our immigration policy is and what our social security policy is like. That's just, you know, uh, just kind of factual knowledge about the policies. Uh, Then you would also need some social scientific knowledge. So, you know, okay, I can read the text of some legislation uh, do I have reason to think it's going to be effective? So, you know, I, I can understand what the minimum wage is. This is a good idea. I don't know. That's going to take some social scientific knowledge. You might have to know a little economics. Wouldn't hurt. I'm biased as a philosopher. It wouldn't hurt to know a little bit of philosophy about whether it's fair or not. It's just a, there's a lot of research. Uh, and it would take a lot of time to acquire this knowledge. And then you also mentioned bias and politically motivated reasoning. So uh, a worry is that even if you acquire all of this knowledge, uh, you're going to, or this information, you're going to process it in a biased way. So, you you know, you would probably come into it with your pre-existing partisan commitments. So if you're, uh, you know, a Democrat or Republican reading about school vouchers or gun control, for example, you're probably inclined to a certain perspective from the start. And so maybe if you're a Democrat, you're more skeptical of information that tells you gun control doesn't work. Or if you're a Republican, you're gonna be skeptical of information that tells you gun control does work. And so it could be that all the research is is ultimately for nothing. It's not actually going to change your mind. It just reinforces what you believed anyway. But then if you recognize this tendency about yourself, where you think, look, I, I might get pretty solid information that suggests that my view is wrong, but that information won't actually move me, it won't lead me to correct my beliefs, then you should be really self-skeptical, I think, of, of your political beliefs and say, I'm just not sure if I'm, if I'm on the right side here. I'm not sure if I'm gonna vote for the right candidate. And I think this also weakens the argument for political participation. It's like if somebody has, they, they there's like a button in front of you, and they say, uh, it, you know, if uh, the button is, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, like, light or if the button is sky blue, uh it's good. If it's Robin's egg blue, it's bad. And it's like, hmm, okay, like, I'm not sure I can trust myself. Like my color vision is not super great. I don't know if it's Robin's egg blue or <laughs> sky blue. Like, okay, maybe you don't push the button if you can't trust your own judgment in that case. And so similarly, if you think, hmm, I can't really trust my judgment about which candidate's going to be better. Uh So if you, if you do it right, that could be good. But if you do it wrong, that could be really bad. You might just say, look, I'm gonna set this one out and what I should do is reallocate my time to causes that I have much more confidence in. So it's pretty easy to be confident that donations to the Against Malaria Foundation are going to do good. And I think the fact that we should just be self-skeptical of our political judgments increases the reason that we have to disengage from politics and focus on other forms of altruism that are not as politicized.
1: Yeah, and I I definitely want to talk a little bit about that because you have some really great examples of the thinking about and, and also criticisms of people saying, look, I'm going to do this instead of voting or I'm going to do this instead of political behavior. But before we get to that, I so so we can say, okay, we've got one one reason here to to really give serious consideration to the prospect that it's okay to ignore politics is what it does to you and to your relationships and how it makes you feel. Another reason is that we need to be skeptical, not just about our knowledge, but the application of the knowledge we have. Even if we did tons of research, would we be able to apply it um, in a way that, that confidently predicts the policy outcomes we're, we're trying to achieve? But even having said all that, there are going to be people, I know there are going to be people, Um, including people in my family who've said this to me before, who are going to say, well, okay, but even if that's all true, I just still feel like it's important to be politically active because what if everybody had that point of view? What if everybody stopped
0: voting? The problem with this style of objection is I think it just overgeneralizes in really weird ways. So you could apply this test to a lot of actions that are clearly morally permissible, but it would deem them impermissible. So a standard example that I give is a student, let's say, uh, who decides to become a neurosurgeon rather than a farmer. And you say, you're not gonna become a farmer. Well, what if nobody farmed, we would starve to death. And you could say, yeah, that's, that's true. Um, but we're not actually, you know, as far as I know, we're not actually in danger of uh, everybody uh, ceasing to farm. And so given that is background, and perhaps we have plenty of farmers, there's no danger of a food shortage or anything like that. Since we have plenty of farmers, uh, I can actually do more good for the world by not farming and being a neurosurgeon instead. I suppose you're going to be a great neurosurgeon or something like that. I can help more people that way. Uh, and I think that that makes a ton of sense. Or, or another example that I give is uh, volunteering at a soup kitchen during Thanksgiving, So apparently it's actually not a great idea for a person to try to volunteer at a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving because there are just so many, like that's the most popular day for volunteering. And so you say, okay, if on Thanksgiving I want to do good, uh, uh, I shouldn't go to the uh, the, uh, soup kitchen and uh, volunteer because they already have tons of volunteers. It's not really going to make a difference. I could go do something else where they do need my help. Uh, And that's kind of my, and and it's true. Like if nobody volunteered on Thanksgiving, that would be bad, Uh, but you don't really have any impact on that. You just have an impact on you. And my attitude towards voting and political participation is the same. So if nobody voted, it would be really bad, just as it would be really bad if nobody farmed or nobody volunteered on Thanksgiving. But that's just not the world we live in. We live in a world where there are plenty of voters such that you adding your vote won't make any difference. It's like volunteering at the soup kitchen on Thanksgiving. So you say, if you want to do good for the world, uh, maybe don't vote, and don't worry about the researching and debiasing your vote, which is what you would really have to do to be confident you're casting a good vote in the first place. And just spend that time on more effective forms of altruism that actually will have an impact. Mm-hmm. And, and I think w- one way to conceive of this is as a division of labor. You need farmers, but you also need neurosurgeons. You need people volunteering at soup kitchens, but you also need people volunteering with Habitat for Humanity. Uh, it, it would be sort of strange if somebody said, everybody has to volunteer at a soup kitchen. You say, well, okay, but we've got plenty of soup kitchen volunteers. Can't I do my part by volunteering for Habitat for Humanity? Everybody, I think, intuitively grasps that that's totally fine and probably better that we have this division of philanthropic labor. And my argument about voting is similar. Uh, it's, you know, it's good that we have sufficiently many people who are, who are casting good votes, uh, but you could say that doesn't mean everybody has to do it. Some people can vote other people can raise funds for effective charities in the same way that, you know, some people can farm and other people can be neurosurgeons.
1: That does make me think that there are people who vote in the same way when we're talking about you hate the other party more than you like your own. There are probably people who vote in this kind of defensive or maybe it's offensive way of saying, yeah, I don't want other people to have more power. So I might not be good, but neither are they. Right.
0: Uh, yeah. And, and, and so sometimes too, uh, uh, political partisans are analogized to sports fans where, and this explains some of the bias where they acquire information and they cheer. Not, it, it's not like they're acquiring the information in an unbiased way. No, they're doing it in a way that flatters their home team. And it's not because they're not cheering to make a difference. They're cheering to express their loyalty. And, and you know, in the same way, I think a lot of sports fans, at least in my experience, they, they, they hate their team's rivals uh, as much or more than they, oh, yeah. they like their own team. And so like, they're like, all right, I got to go out and go, in my case, like, I got to cheer against the Boston Celtics or yeah. something like that, because yeah. I really dislike them. Uh, yeah, and so, but so in terms of, de- uh, of defensiveness, um, I, I think my, my thought on that would go back to just the inefficacy of an individual vote. So you might think, uh, the, so it, you might think with justification, uh, the other party is, is really bad. And yeah. that still leaves open the question of, okay, well, well how should I respond? Yeah. And if it turns out that that one form of response won't actually make a difference, maybe you should consider a different one. So I, I have this analogy to a hurricane. To so say a hurricane is bad. Um, but like you can't really do anything to stop the hurricane. Um, but you might be able so you know, somebody said, Oh, what you should do is uh throw a penny in the wishing well and wish for the hurricane to go away, you'd say yeah, but that's not going to change it, is it? No, no, probably not. I say, okay, well, how about rather than do that, I make preparations for when the hurricane is about to strike. So maybe some vulnerable people uh, have to evacuate and you help them evacuate. You you help ameliorate some of the harms. That strikes me as a perfectly sensible response to the yeah. hurricane. And maybe you look at the victory of the out party as, as a political hurricane. You say, I can't really stop it. Casting the vote is like casting the penny in the wishing well. But what I can do is, uh, you know, uh, take steps to ameliorate some of the harms that I expect to come. So maybe you think that the the um, incoming administration is going to be really terrible on food insecurity. Okay, then that might be a reason for you to raise funds for a food bank that can help combat food insecurity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I like that too, because I like one of the things you said about it was you don't want to be defined by the things you hate, right? So if we let the things, if we say, well, yeah, I don't like that, but... I mean, I get that I might not be great. I might not be really informed, but I really don't want those other people. So I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing that being defined by the things you dislike or letting that kind of rule your life is also a very bad thing. You, I think you said you don't want to be defined by the fact that you don't like the Dallas Cowboys or something like that. I should probably <laughs> I said, not say that. No, no, we...
0: no, I said Dallas Cowboys. I think it was Dallas Cowboys and inner ear infections. Actually. Inner ear infections, so that's saying, right. Like who would want to be defined by those things? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think that's I think that's right. And I think, you know, uh, a good exercise or a good sort of self-check is if you're reading about politics or, or you know, you're getting into let's say a debate about politics with someone and you start to feel yourself like really getting ramped up and like, ah, oh, like this person I'm, I, you know, is really irritating me. Just like, you know, take a deep breath, take a step back and be like, all right, uh, you know, I've got my views, they've got their views. Like we're probably both frankly, not super well informed. We're both probably biased. Like I, unless you have some particular reason to think that they're uh, being malicious or, or willfully ignorant or something like that, that's like, all right, they've arrived at different conclusions. I have no particular reason to think they're a terrible person. Uh, so let's maybe cool, cool down a little bit, just like whenever you feel your blood pressure rising, it's pro- probably a good idea to take a step back.
1: There's almost a sense in which um, that conviction about political behavior is, is almost like um, religious, right? I mean, it's something that you say, well, you can give me 15 different reasons here, but I know in my heart that if you don't vote, you're not really a part of this. Uh, I think that's a really hard, you know, hill to climb for people.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's 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 really at the core of a lot of people's identity, uh, mm-hmm. their own particular uh, political allegiances and the importance of political participation. So this, so in the book, right in the introduction, so this is like a true story about my classes. So I say like, you know, as a philosopher, I just do like, I give them crazy thought experiments. Uh, and, and one of the try and true thought experiments is, well, what if you can uh, kill an innocent person and harvest their organs and redistribute those organs to two people to save their lives. And my students are like, huh, okay, that's, that's like kind of weird. I don't think I would endorse that. Occasionally you'll get some, some students who endorse it, but they're like, yeah, okay, like I could, I, and you know, you give them the arguments. Like, they yeah, think I'm it gonna, through. They think it through. Exactly. Yeah. They entertain it. I'm like, yeah, Okay. Like, I don't know if I buy it, but I can, I can see the point. And then I'll, I'll, I'll give them some sort of argument why there's no duty to vote. And they're totally scandalized and nobody like buys it for a second. They're like, well, this is crazy. <laughs> I think, okay, that's a little bit strange that they're willing to entertain the, the merits of murder. Like it's yeah. a beneficent murder perhaps, right? but it's, it's murder. I'm like, oh yeah, okay. I can kind of see why somebody would do that. And then you know they read an argument like, oh, you don't have a duty to vote because you know you can do good for the world in other ways. Like, no, that's crazy. That's
1: yeah, I'm, crazy. Not gonna inter- I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to discuss
0: that with you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think this is another case that just reveals how strong this conviction is. And, and oftentimes, it's it's not even about you have to vote for my candidate. It's just you have you have to vote. It, yeah. It's Super super important. You have to perform this ritual. Well. Uh, yeah.
1: And I think, too, um, you know, when we think about our convictions about things, anytime we have something that's like such a knee-jerk reaction to something, it is probably worth stopping and saying, why do you feel that? Like, why will you consider that harvesting organs? You know? But but the idea that you wouldn't be politically active is not something that you're even willing to stop and talk about. Anytime we feel that strongly about something, it's probably worth giving ourselves a minute to pause and think it through.
0: I think that's absolutely right. I think it's a good practice. Whenever you're, you're in some sort of philosophical debate, when you feel your blood pressure rising, you think, all right, this might be a red flag. Um, let me take a deep breath and let me see, like, like what, what's really going on here? Is it, is it really the case that I'm kind of clinically analyzing the arguments on their merits? Or is there there's something that feels threatening to, to you know, what I believe? So this actually speaks to the, uh, another case I talk about in the book, which is, is super fascinating, which is uh, these experimenters put political partisans in an fMRI machine. Yeah. And, they, and they, gave them, they gave them politically neutral uh, information that threatens their beliefs. I forget, one of them is like the claim that Edison invented a light bulb or something, yeah. like, or like he didn't invent the light bulb or something. Yeah. And people were like, oh, yeah, okay. Like, oh, I guess I was wrong. I guess somebody else invented a light bulb. Okay, no big deal but then they gave them information that threatened their political convictions. And not, uh, predictably, they, they weren't buying it. They were like, ah, eh, look, I'm not gonna change my mind. But apparently like the, the um, regions of the brain that were associated with like threats to physical safety yeah. started to light up. And the, the one experimenter said, it, you know, if you looked at their brain, uh, you might think that they were being chased by a bear or something. Yeah. And so it's like politically threatening information threatens us in the same way that like a bear threatens us. And I think that's, that's interesting and that's an important thing to know about ourselves. So maybe that's like w- when we're feeling the blood pressure rise, when we hear people tell us uh, things that we don't want to hear about our party or a candidate or even just, you know, things we don't want to hear about the importance of voting. And I'd say, okay, like maybe I'm being less than 100% clinical here. Yeah, let's recognize that and take a step back and see if I can analyze the arguments on its merits.
1: Yeah, we we had um, Tanya Israel, who's a professor of psychology on our last episode, and she has a book on talking across political divides. But one of the things she talks about and getting yourself prepared for those kind of conversations is like breathing exercises because when you get you start to feel your blood pressure go up and you start to feel your hands sweat and all this other stuff like you actually have to take sort of steps to physically calm yourself down to be able to continue the discussion um, and that lines up really well with what you're saying about the the mris okay so um you've got the peace and reason in november you've got the book the book is out now um and people can get that um where else can people find out about the work you're doing? What do you want them to look at to learn more about your, your thinking on this?
0: So my my personal website, which is uh, just cfryman.com, that's me, C. Fryman, my, my last name. Uh, although I haven't updated that in a while, I need to update that. Uh, but that, that would be a good place to go. But I think uh, in, in terms of what I'm doing on a more regular basis, I blog at 200 Proof Liberals uh, with a bunch of other uh, political philosophers. So if, if you're curious uh, what I'm thinking, uh, you know, on a, on a uh, more regular basis, that would probably be the place to go.
1: Very cool. Very cool. Well, it's a great book. It's very readable. I think uh, all the people, I think our audience would benefit from reading it, even if it's uncomfortable for them to read it. Uh, and we will link to all of this in the show notes so they see it. But we really appreciate your time, especially at this time of year. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. And I really do hope you will read Chris's book uh, and some of the articles that we'll link to in the show notes. Are you going to ignore politics? Um, If you're listening to this, there's a a high likelihood that you're listening to it in the days before the 2020 presidential election. Uh, And, you know, I think Chris is probably realistic about the likelihood that this podcast or his book will impact your your behavior. But I do hope that as, um, as a result of listening to what Chris has to say, you will stop to think about your own political behavior, why you do what you do, what kind of impact you think your behavior has, um, and what other alternatives you have. And I, I certainly hope that if you care a lot about your community and you care and think that political participation is important, you'll discuss that with your friends and your family um, and people you know, and talk about you know what you think political participation achieves and how you know what it achieves and whether it's the best use of your time. I know that might be controversial when everything that we see around us is telling us that it's really important that we participate politically, but I think if it's important, it's important for us to think about why we do it and to talk about that with other people. Thanks again for joining us.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.